Well, good morning. Uh, we are continuing our journey through Acts this morning and have reached chapter 12. Andrew, where is Andrew? There he is. Andrew has kindly agreed to read the passage for us. So without further ado, Andrew, if you would do that, it is Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 19. It was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. He had James, the brother of John, put to death with the sword. When he saw that this met with approval among the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. This happened during the festival of unleavened bread. After arresting him, he put him in prison, handing him over to be guarded by four squads of four soldiers each. Herod intended to bring him out for public trial after the Passover. So Peter was kept in prison, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. The night before Herod was to bring him to trial, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. Suddenly, an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Quick! Get up, he said, and the chains fell off Peter's wrists. Then the angel said to him, put on your clothes and sandals, and Peter did so. Wrap your cloak around you and follow me, the angel told him. Peter followed him out of the prison, but he had no idea that what the angel was doing was really happening. He thought he was seeing a vision. They passed the first and second guards, and came to the iron gate leading to the city. It opened for them by itself, and they went through it. When they had walked the length of one street, suddenly the angel left him. Then Peter came to himself and said, Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. When this had dawned on him, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, also called Mark, where many people had gathered and were praying. Peter knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. When she recognized Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed that she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. You're out of your mind, they told her. When she kept insisting that it was so, they said, it must be his angel. But Peter kept on knocking, and when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished. Peter motioned with his hand for them to be quiet and described how the Lord had brought him out of prison. Tell James and the other brothers and sisters about this, he said, and then he left for another place. In the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as to what had become of Peter. After Herod had a thorough search made for him and did not find him, he cross-examined the guards and ordered that they be executed. Thank you very much, Andrew. <clears throat> well, on first reading this passage, I was at a bit of a loss as to what I could actually say about it. It all seemed so screamingly obvious. Herod's a jerk. God works miracles. Who knew? 
<laughs> However, I have been caught out this way before, many times, and I like to think I try to learn from past mistakes, which is, after all, one of the things this passage deals with so brilliantly. Peter proves here that he actually learnt something from the floating forbidden meat sheet, which we read about in chapter 10 and about which Toby spoke a couple of weeks ago. Do listen to the podcast if you missed it. And don't miss Jesse's talk from last week either. I got a great deal from both. I have to say, however, I will not be listening to the podcast of this. Reason being that, you know, you can convince yourself you have a nice voice and then you hear yourself and tape. And you think, oh my goodness, go out and get a quilted green jacket and a couple of Labradors for crying out loud. <laughs> I want to look at the first five verses of this chapter on their own and then talk about the remaining 14. The first five have their own theme, not a very pleasant one, it seems to me. And there are more than two more, th and then there are two more themes to consider from the remaining verses, which are much more encouraging. I also want to talk about how at least part of this passage is written, how it comes across, and why it is so powerful, at least for me. For note-takers, this talk is entitled The Dog Next Door, for reasons which will become clear in due course. We see from verses 1 to 5 that Herod is not a happy man. This sect, these little Christs, these Christians, were beginning to make him really angry. And as is the way with some powerful people, when others upset them, they begin to abuse their power. So he kills a few of these wretched little Christs, including James, the brother of John, we're told. And then comes that chilling verse in, uh, phrase in verse 3. When he saw that this met with approval amongst the Jews, he proceeded to seize Peter also. Theme one. Theme is a grandiose term. Observation one. Herod is playing to the gallery. He's giving the Jewish people what they want. He does not consider whether what the people want is just or reasonable or thought through or even true. Look how many Jews to date had heard Peter's message and accepted it. That was, after all, why Herod was so cross in the first place, because the gospel of Christ, as preached by the disciples, was having such a powerful effect on the people lots of Christian Jews would not have approved of Herod's actions, but a lot of his people did. So Herod decides to pander to the people's baser inclinations and to oppress a minority. Does that sound familiar? Historically and globally, Herods have abounded. A cursory glance at our 21st century world shows that leaders who play on people's fears and prejudices abound still. We could cite so many examples. Some people question whether the Bible has any relevance today, whether events that happened 2,000 years ago can have any possible bearing on events in our sophisticated, technologically advanced, woke times. When I read the first five verses of Acts 12, I see instantly that the Bible does have relevance. Of course it does, or we wouldn't be here. We are not so woke that we don't behave in exactly the same way 
on occasion, as people in the Bible do, badly, thoughtlessly, going with the crowd because we're too scared to speak out against it and to risk ridicule or rejection. Whenever I read scripture, I'm struck by the number of heroes and heroines of the faith who are flawed, feeble, insignificant, greedy, disobedient, stubborn, know-it-all losers. But God uses them. In fact, he seems to delight in using them. The dog next door. I will explain, honestly. And while I might be tempted to despair that there is nothing new under the sun, as Ecclesiastes says, and that people are just as vile now as they were then, that is only one side of the story. There is another side, and it's this side which Jesus calls us to concentrate on. The first five verses are not in themselves good news, perhaps, but what follows is. Verses 6 to 11 are simply a factual account of Peter being sprung from prison by an angel. There may be some here who find that hard to swallow. Well, you're in good company. Peter didn't believe it either. He thinks he's in a trance of some kind, as he was with the floating forbidden meat sheet. Or having the kind of wonderful dream we all sometimes get when waking up is simply an inconvenience, an interruption of something infinitely preferable to real life. We can't get into the study of angels here because there isn't time, but I can recommend a short article online by Wayne Grudem outlining what we know about angels from the Bible. In it, he says... Much of what we see or hear about angels in culture is based on speculation, non-biblical sources, or just plain fantasy. He goes on to say that the Bible has a great deal to say about angels, however, and he highlights where in the scriptures that happens. This is an aside, but one worth making, because to overlook the miraculous in this passage would be silly. In the natural, what happens to Peter in Acts chapter 12 is impossible, but... Matthew 19, verse 26 says, Jesus looked at them and said, with man, this is impossible, but with God, all things are possible. Discussing the miraculous like discussing angels is for another time, however, and another preacher. So, chains fall off. The two guys he's sleeping between fail to wake up, and when the chains fall off, the two wide-awake, presumably, sentries fail to hear or to see Peter and the angel pass. The gate opens by itself, and Peter goes along with it because he thinks he's dreaming. He grabs his opportunity, and once he's on the outside and realizes fully that he is actually on the outside, he gives honor where it's due. Verse 11. Now I know without a doubt that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from Herod's clutches and from everything the Jewish people were hoping would happen. Theme two, Peter learns from past mistakes. Only two chapters previously, he's reminding God that he isn't supposed to eat impure and unclean things, even though God is telling him to do just that. He prides himself on not eating impure and unclean things, and on doing things in the right and proper fashion. He's a virtue signaler, our Peter. He knows his law, and he knows his place. 
Even when he was with Jesus, he was telling him that he couldn't possibly allow Jesus to wash his feet because Jesus is Jesus and he's just a lowly fisherman. And when Jesus replies that Peter can have no part in what he's doing unless he gets his feet washed, Peter then goes all extreme on him and says, okay then, so not just my feet, do my hands and my head too. Read all about it in John chapter 13. It's easy to patronize Peter, having the privileges we do, of being able to read his life story with the wonderful benefit of hindsight. Peter had to live his life forwards, as we all do. He may have been stubborn, hot-headed, cowardly, and self-righteous, but he listened and he learned. And what's more, the lessons kept to come in. These events in Acts 10 and 12 obviously occur after he had tried to insist that Jesus do what he thought was right, read the foot washing thing. After he had cut off Malchus's ear in the Garden of Gethsemane, this is written up in all four Gospels, but he's named only in John's Gospel. And after he denied Jesus three times. What was Jesus thinking, building his church on Peter? Actually, how gracious Jesus was to choose Peter, not just to him, but also to us. What a great example he is to us. Flawed, feeble, insignificant, greedy, disobedient, stubborn, know-it-all Peter. I'm so grateful Jesus Jesus chose someone just like us on whom to build his church. Here is a truth universally acknowledged. We all make mistakes. They can be excruciating, embarrassing, and really, really stupid. There are two known antidotes to making mistakes. One, we must apologize if we're wrong, and then do what Peter did. We must learn from them. If we're on the receiving end of someone's mistake, let's be gracious. It'll be us next time. If we've made a mistake, we must remember that mistakes are not sins. We must resist doing the devil's work for him by beating ourselves up. He really doesn't need our help. In chapter 10, Peter has to see the meat sheet three times before he begins even to wonder at its meaning, verse 17. He's still wondering in verse 19, and by verse 28, he's got it. In Christ, there is neither Jew nor Gentile. I want to reach the whole world. I don't doubt that Peter sought to honor his God by being obedient to the law. It took him a while to see and accept that God had other plans, new plans, which moved things on, which extended grace to those who were previously excluded by race or tradition from his kingdom. We too can sometimes be hidebound by tradition. I never did this in the past, so I'm not going to do it now. This isn't how we used to do it. I liked it better when I'm not having a pop at traditional ways of doing church. I love traditional liturgy, sacred music, ancient churches, and stained glass. Occasionally, if I'm honest, I yearn for it. God is a God of infinite variety. But we don't ever want to be people who use the word of God as a club to beat other Christians around the head with. Our way or the highway? Let's remember what Jesse said last week. Your brother is never your enemy. Our job is to learn to listen to God and not to find fault if others choose to do things 
differently. We're not talking change for change's sake. We're talking openness to the Holy Spirit of God. This is what Peter models to us here, an openness to believe that just because something has always been thus and so by our way of it, it doesn't mean it's inconceivable that the Holy Spirit is asking us to reconsider. Which brings me neatly to theme three, listening to God. After all his prevaricating and bluster, Peter has learned to listen and to act upon what he's heard. He doesn't discuss with the angel how he got past the guards, what his plans are, and why there isn't a snowball's chance in hell of them working. He just gets up and goes. One of the questions I'm most frequently asked by people embarking on a life with Jesus is, how do I hear God? Does he speak in an audible voice? What if it's just me? What if I'm making it up? Isn't it presumptuous to think that God speaks to me? Why would he do that? Let's answer the last two questions first. Isn't it presumptuous to think God speaks to me, and why would he do that? Here's where we get to the dog next door. Many of you will be familiar with the story of Balaam, which we read about in the Old Testament in the book of Numbers, chapter 22. In it we read about how not only is Balaam saved from death by his donkey, said donkey also has a chat with him in the course of saving his life. And the chat is only interrupted by yet another angel. They get everywhere, these angels. Way back in the last century, Toby, my husband, introduced me to the music of a Christian musician called Don Francisco. Hands up if you know who Don Francisco is. Flying the flag for the over 60s, excellent, good. Uh, Although some of you I know aren't, she says hastily. (laughs) On one of his albums, he has a song about Balaam and his donkey called, imaginatively, Balaam. He did a lot of narrative songs, some of them humorous and very tongue-in-cheek, like this one, others genuinely moving and meaningful, although I will acknowledge he was of his time. He's uh, 77 years old now, and don't even go there if you don't like country music. The last verse of Balaam goes like this. The Lord's the one who makes the choice of the instrument he's using. We don't know the reasons and the plans behind his choosing. So when the Lord starts using you, don't pay it any mind. He could have used the dog next door if he'd been so inclined. (laughs) I think we need to turn the question around. Isn't it presumptuous to think God speaks to me needs to become... Isn't it presumptuous to imagine he wouldn't? He chose Peter, after all. What's more, God is in the business of extending his kingdom, so why would he limit the means by which to do so? 1 Timothy 4, verses 3 to 4 says this, God, our Savior, wants all people to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. That's a tall order if he doesn't also spread the load. How do we hear God? Well, perhaps it's easier to ask, how does God speak? In many ways, through the Bible, is the first way and the foundational way. God can and does speak to us other than through scripture, but if we are not familiar with the word of God, it is easier, in my opinion, for things to go very awry. God asks us to build one another up, to encourage one another, to bless one another, and occasionally, yes, gently reprimand one another. Reading about Jesus, what he said, and what his earliest followers then did gives us essential guidelines as to how to do all that. 
It's also not really enough to have read it all once and to think, as many do, that they've got the gist. A, we forget and get things muddled, and B, we never question that we have to eat regularly to stay alive, so why would we think a reading through the Bible when we were 20 is enough to keep us alive through the decades? The Bible is spiritual food. We have to get into the habit of eating healthily. It's all too easy to snack on the run and then wonder why we don't feel so great. Similarly, with the Bible, we need to take sustenance from it regularly. Like any good habit, it's easier to talk about than to do. But like all good habits, it does pay off. It also takes effort, which is annoying, but it is worth it. Two, God speaks through pictures which sometimes come unbidden into our minds. Toby tells the story of a young guy in our previous church who had a picture of a pink birthday cake with candles on it for a woman in his home group. Imagine what an idiot he felt speaking that one out. She promptly burst into tears because her adult daughter was coming to visit from overseas. It was her birthday shortly after her arrival and her mum had been debating whether or not to make her her traditional pink birthday cake with candles on it because she was really too busy. Her daughter was 22 anyway and would probably think it was childish, etc., etc. She made the cake, much to her daughter's delight. It is so trivial as an example, but it blessed the mother, and through her in turn listening to God, as the young guy had done, it blessed her daughter. Three, God can speak through physical sensation. We believe in this church that God still speaks and heals today, as we state every single Sunday morning. On occasion, people have experienced a sudden pain or ache in a shoulder, say, or in their back or in their ear, which has not troubled them personally, and which came and just as suddenly went. Sometimes, speaking that out can encourage someone who actually is having trouble with their shoulder or back or ear to come up and get prayer and possibly get healed. They might have thought it was altogether, again, too trivial to bother about until somebody had that sense that God wanted to heal. This, by the way, has never happened to me personally, but that is really neither here nor there. God has never spoken to me in dreams either, my dreams are always completely barking. But just because I haven't experienced it doesn't mean God doesn't do it. He can use the dog next door. Does God speak in an audible voice? Well, again, not to me, but I've heard him speak loud and clear in my head. Once, many years ago, and I was cross that the church I attended was viewed with suspicion by other local churches, nothing changes, I heard him say, you love this church more than you love me, and it was true. I was much happier going into battle for my church than I was standing up for my belief in God at the time. I hope that has changed now. That was the gentle reprimand I mentioned earlier, by the way. I think God often does it rather better than we do, but all I would say is that we must be very careful how we go about reprimanding others. If we do it, we must do it kindly and with humility. We must do it as we would have it done. What if we're making it up and it isn't God speaking at all? Well, that's possible. But if we bear in mind that the rule of thumb is that we are given words, pictures, sensations and dreams and whatever else in order to encourage, bless and build up, we'll do okay. God has spoken to me through reading fiction, secular fiction, through passing comments from others, 
often not even believers themselves, through song lyrics, not always Christian, through nature, through comedy, through programs on the radio and the TV, and very importantly, through young children. This has not necessarily been for others, it has sometimes just been for me, but the principle is the same. We must stop trying to limit God. So yes, God speaks and we can choose whether or not to listen. As a Gabby garrulous person who can't half talk, I love it when people say to me, you're such a good listener. Well, I've worked at it. And we can work at listening to God through all the myriad ways in which he speaks to us. Funnily enough, when I was writing this talk yesterday, I came across a piece of paper marking a place in my Bible, and it said this. Hearing God's voice, sometimes we lack the expectation, sometimes the confidence. I've no idea where I got it from, but I certainly agree with it. God wants everyone to know who Jesus is and what he's done for every one of us, whether we acknowledge it all or whether we don't. Just because we don't believe in him doesn't mean he isn't there. He wants to use us. We can expect to be used to bless others because he's chosen us, even if he's chosen us rather against our own better judgment. He wants his kingdom to grow. And the best way to garner confidence is to step out and just do it, risky though it may seem, and also to practice. Just like with a musical instrument or a foreign language or a sport, then if you're on the receiving end of a word or a picture or whatever it may be, simply thank the person who gave it to you. Even if you don't feel it has spoken to you particularly, it is still a blessing that people have prayed for you with all the self-doubt they may be experiencing. That's how we build both expectation and confidence, working together to ensure God's kingdom comes and his will is done. Now we get to verse 12. This is one of at least three moments in the New Testament I can think of, and there are others throughout the Bible which make me laugh. I'm not sure that scripture is renowned for its comedy, but comedy exists in it nonetheless. Picture the scene. Peter is sprung from prison by an angel. He goes to his mate's mum's house, where he is well known. He is looking over his shoulder, waiting for the pounding feet of prison guards who've realized that he's gone and are surely giving chase by now. He knocks on the outer door. He knows the servant's name. Rhoda, it's me, it's Peter, let me in. She stops in her tracks. Peter, but you're in prison. Yes, it's me, no, I'm, I'm, I'm here, I'm not in prison, let me in. Oh my goodness, Peter, I'll just go and tell them you're here. No. Just let me in. <laughs> he listens to her retreating footsteps over the inner cart courtyard, and he's a sitting duck. Rhoda rushes into the room where Peter's friends are, earnestly praying for his release. Peter's here. Their response is clearly the first century equivalent of, yeah, whatever. <laughs> he's in prison, lovey. That's why we're here. No, honestly, he's just outside. It's definitely him. I'd know his voice anywhere. They don't believe her. You can imagine them all looking at her as if she's a few bricks short of a load, and then at one another. Women. <laughs> okay, this is pre-Me Too, all right? Let's cut them some slack. She insists. They say it must be Peter's angel at the door. More angels. Meanwhile... 
Peter is still outside the gate in fear of his life, knocking on the outer gate for all he's worth. Eventually, it seems to dawn on the assembled group that somebody does indeed seem to be knocking, rather hysterically. <laughs> Maybe it's not an angel, because let's face it, if they can materialize anywhere they want with their flaming swords and all that, then it'd be inside anyway, right? So open the gate. And on seeing it is actually Peter, just as the dozy maid said, they started whooping and hollering and back, like, wait, mate, you're here, yeah. To the extent that Peter has to shut them up. As, <laughs> as far as he's concerned, their welcome is the equivalent of a text message to the prison authority saying he's at, he's at 9 Jerusalem Street, come and get him. I can see this on the big screen. Of course, this passage is open to interpretation, but the rather desperate humor of it certainly sticks in my mind. I'll tell you what the other two moments of mirth in the New Testament are later if you're interested, but they're wholly irrelevant here, so we'll move on. The, the Bible is history. It records the law. It's poetry. It tells a story. Jesus, above all others, knew the power of stories. He used them in his teaching again and again. The Bible contains many different styles of writing. It can be factual, it can be brutal, it can be lyrical, and occasionally it can be funny. There are many ways to get a point across. In this passage, I think Luke opted for humor. The last verse, however, is not a barrel of laughs. Herod is unimpressed that Peter has escaped, so, as is his wont, he kills the guards he holds responsible. I'm happy to say I've never killed anyone, so far anyway, but I have sometimes resorted to the blame game. I'm ashamed to admit. In fact, only yesterday morning, I was entertaining my daughter Rachel in the car with my view as to who is wholly responsible for the political mess we're in here in the UK at the moment. It is so much easier to apportion blame to just one person than actually to think, I find. Finally, a brief word about prayer. In verse 5, we read that the church was earnestly praying to God for Peter. When Peter gets to Mary's house, the church is still praying. We don't know for sure that there is a direct correlation between the prayers of the church and Peter's escape, but Luke certainly saw fit to mention it twice in the space of seven verses. So I think we can safely assume its importance. I love this quote from William Temple, who was Archbishop of Canterbury, during World War II. He said, when I pray, coincidences happen. When I don't, they don't. I think that's a pretty good place to stop. Shall we stand? We have an opportunity now to, to pray for one another. And for those of you who are visiting, um, just so you know, everybody who prays up here at the front um, is a member of a home group and uh, has had some training in how to pray for people. And so we just want to bless you um, and to bless what God is doing in each of our lives. So if you feel there is anything that you would like prayer for, um, anything you would like about learning to listen better to God, any, anything at all. We just loved that opportunity. So I'll pray for you now, and then please do come up if you'd like to. Father God, we love you. Father, thank you that your church is built not on 
superstars and superheroes, but people just like us. And so, Father, we, uh, we come before you as people who just want to give our extremely humble offering and ask that you would use it and multiply it to serve your purposes in your kingdom through the strength of your Son and by your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. <laughs>